0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Today, we are picking up on my talk from last Monday about cultural capital. We are having a think about exactly what it means. We're having a dive into the history of cultural capital, and we're thinking about ways that we can improve our teaching by including it deliberately into our practice. Hey, very good morning to you on this Saturday, the 1st of July, 2023. We made it. We made it through the first six months of the year. We are now coming into my favorite part. Um, as I said before, and as I said on the show, uh, kind of last summer, I do like the, the second half of the year much more than the first. Um, I like the summer holidays. Of course, I think we all like the summer holidays, Um, even though summer is not my favorite season. um, I do like having a nice chunk of time off. And then I like that slide where we have all of the different celebrations. I've talked before on the show many, many times about how I like celebrations and how we kind of don't have too many in this first half of the year. But um, we come up to the part now where we have summer holidays, then back to school and then half term in which there is halloween i think this year uh there's definitely a halloween i mean i think it's in half term um <clears throat> and then of course into christmas and new year so we've got all of the fun things coming up and i really do like this this half of the year i really do i'm kind of in a a reminiscent mood i suppose today because my academic year is coming to a close. Uh, my school actually finishes next Saturday, Saturday the 8th, thankfully. Um, we are finishing earlier than um, most state schools. Um, I think two, three weeks earlier. This is the, the, the benefit of working in a school where we have longer lesson times um, in terms of the day and where we work on Saturdays, because it means, of course, that um, all of that gained time is used to give us a couple of extra weeks in the summer, which is very, very welcome. So I've been thinking back on how the academic year 2022, 2023 has gone. I don't know about for everybody else, but to me, this year has seemed like fluff, I think is what I'm gonna say kind of like you know marshmallow fluff um either for my people in the uk when you bite into a marshmallow and it's kind of like airy and sticky on the inside and it's it's something and nothing and then of course my friends across the pond in the usa where you can buy marshmallow fluff in a jar pop it in a sandwich pop it on toast and it's the same thing it's airy it's light it's fluffy it's 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 something and nothing and I feel like for me that's how this academic year has been Um, there have been a lot of changes in my professional life this year that I have been so so grateful for Um, I was thinking the other day it's been about a year since I did my first um, in-person presentation where I spoke at the MFL icons meeting um, up in Manchester and that was where I met Tom and it was through doing that that I was offered the chance to be here on Saturday morning breakfast with you all and through Saturday morning breakfast I've had the opportunity to talk to lots of interesting people, to connect, to network with lots of interesting people on Twitter and to have more opportunities come via that. And so I'm very, very grateful. I'm very grateful looking back on the year that I've had the opportunity to meet all of these people, that I've had the opportunity to have this platform that I have. Um all because I took a chance and advertised, um, applied, sorry, to an advert to talk at a a conference that I really didn't feel I had any business talking at. I'm not on icon. Um, I'm just a teacher. Um in a city that is nowhere near me. Um I'm down in the southwest. Uh and of course Manchester is, is up north to to the extent where um one of my table mates at the event, we had the best table by the way. Um I know that we had this debate not long after it happened, but my table was absolutely the best. But one of my table mates said to me, Did they not have any of these down where you are? Um, because I was so far away from home. It was it was such a, a random place for me to be. But I was accepted and I did my talk and a lot came off of the back of that. And I think because of that I've become a lot braver in terms of things that I am applying to do things that i am deciding i want things that i am putting out there into the universe to see whether they they come to me so the big lesson that i have learned this year and and hopefully the lesson that i am trying to get across to to all of you is apply for these things apply to speak at teach meets apply for the slt position that you want apply for the doctoral program Um, I didn't mention my doctoral program, but I'm very excited that I was given a place at at Reading and I'm on the first year of my my EDD. Apply for all of these things, because the very worst that can happen is that you don't get accepted. And so you are in a place that is no different to where you are right now. And the very best thing that can happen is unimaginable. Because these things snowball. It's like dominoes. One thing happens, then another, then another, then another. Either because of the connections that you make or the confidence that you gain from being accepted into these things. So do apply. It is, it is worth applying for things that you may think you are absolutely not cut out for. Because good things can happen and you can always say no. If you go through the application process and you get accepted and you realise that you really are not ready, you can turn the thing down because there will have been other applicants. But it is worth, in my opinion, it is worth taking those 15, 20 minutes, however long it might be, to apply for the thing so that you can do it. So that's been the kind of positive change in my life over this academic year. I don't think there have really been any negative changes. I think I'm very grateful for that. Um, My family and friends have all made it through the year unscathed. We're all alive. (laughs) Um, My school is still standing. My children are still my children. Uh, By which I mean, of course, my children at school. Um, My year 11s have come through their GCSEs, my Year 13s, have come through their A-Levels. It's been been a year, I think, where school has thankfully been steady. School itself has been normal, what I would have expected. Um, And that has allowed me to pursue all of these other things outside of school all of this professional career development outside of school um for which I am very grateful so yeah fluffy fluffy is how I'm going with the year it's been light it's been airy um it's been it's been something and nothing but it's been nice i've enjoyed it and here is hoping that i haven't spoken too soon because i am well aware that i've still got 6 days left um <laughs> But here is hoping that the academic year 2023-2024 will be just as fluffy because I think with the state of education at the moment, with all of the negativity surrounding talks of pay rises and disputes and strikes and funding cuts, and that's in addition to the cost of living crisis and fuel crises and whatever other crisis we happen to be living through. Um, I think it's nice for us to hope for a little bit of fluff. I think it's nice for us to just try and enjoy some things. Just try and enjoy where we are and what we are going through.
2: It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: The BBC reported on the high cost of school uniforms. Whilst this is nothing new, the current cost of living crisis has brought the issue back into focus. The charity, the Children's Society, Claims in the report that parents are spending an average of £422 a year on secondary and £287 on primary uniforms. This is despite rules that were meant to lower the cost. The government commented that it was working to ensure uniform costs are reasonable. The BBC reports that some parents have said that they are having to choose between uniforms and holidays because prices have increased. The Children's Society said it had polled 2,000 parents across the UK, and found that parents could be paying an average of £75 for coats and bags, an average of £63 for sports clothing, and around £62 for school shoes. Under changes to the Education Act last year, schools in England are meant to be helping cut costs for parents. However, the Children's Society found pupils were still expected to have three to five branded items as part of uniform. Whilst many schools now offer pre-loved uniform to struggling families, parents and charities continue to say that more must be done. FE Week reports on the new NHS workforce plan, calling it a fantastic opportunity for the FE sector. In an opinion piece by Robert Halfen, the plan is claimed to put apprenticeships and skills training at the heart of the NHS workforce strategy. The FE sector already offers training for apprenticeships in a range of core healthcare roles, such as dental nurse, healthcare support worker, and pharmacy technician. But the new plan seeks to broaden the range and routes into working for the NHS. The government has announced £40 million of funding over the next two years to help eligible providers expand degree apprenticeships. £48 million of funding is also backing the higher technical qualification in healthcare roles. The BBC features concerns about the number of nurseries closing in England, after more than 400 closed in the last year. The sector is blaming chronic underfunding and rising costs the National Day Nurseries Association said the data raised serious questions about whether there would be enough places to deliver the government's promised expansion of free childcare. In the year to the end of March, the number of nurseries fell from 27,291 to 26,884, with the overall number of places dropping by 3,512. When childminders were included, the overall number of childcare places fell by 24,521. In March's budget, the Chancellor announced the extension of the current scheme, offering some families in England 33 hours of childcare per week for three to four-year-olds to cover younger children. The change would be phased in from April next year. Nurseries say the amount of government payment does not cover costs leading to closures for some businesses. A Department of Education spokesperson said that the picture was broadly positive as the decrease in places was only 2% on last year, although it was recognised that there are some local challenges. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
4: Hello, this week I'm going to talk VPN. For those of you thinking, why is Steve talking about underwear fashion faux pas? A VPN is a virtual private network, and knowing a little bit about them might make you realise You actually need one. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, a VPN changes how internet data is transmitted from a device. It allows the user to be more hidden. I know what you're thinking. I'm no cyber criminal. Why do I want to conceal my data? Well, let's look at three things a VPN can do for you. ...to any device you can put on the internet. Do you use public networks? A public network may be the Wi-Fi on the bus or a train, a local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, any connection that isn't your home. Transmitting data on these networks can potentially allow your data to be intercepted by third parties. Having a VPN allows you to encrypt your data from your device rather than depending on the network you're connecting to. So, when surfing the web while enjoying a burger and fries, you can be confident if you're being intercepted, the data will be useless to the interceptor. The next is shopping online. When connecting to an online shop, some stores use your location and unique device ID to target you. If you're returning to look at a product, the likelihood is you're going to buy it. Knowing this, some stores use clever algorithms to increase the price to maximize their profit. With a VPN, you can mask this data so the price you see is the initial price. The third is some streaming services are blocked by internet providers or unavailable from outside of certain countries. If you're using a VPN, you can choose where to set your location to allow you to see the content you wish to stream. I've not looked at individual providers Some are free, some are paid for. If you're unsure, find a friend who's using one, ask them about it, and use the same one as them to begin with, then you get free tech support. Make sure you know the terms of service. You don't want the VPN you're using keeping your data, as that would defeat the object in the first place. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with
0: Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: I think it's really good for all of us to be um, clued in on VPNs because our children use them. Our students are using them. Um, I'm fairly sure that if you have a policy in your school that allows students to bring their own devices, be it their phones, their tablets, whatever it might be, they will have a VPN installed. So that if they connect to the school's Wi-Fi, um, they are able to circumnavigate a lot of the the blocks that we have in place for safeguarding. Um, I know this. My students have told me that they have a VPN. Uh, my students quite openly tell me that they use them. And I don't know, because I'm not techy enough to know what we can do about it um, to to keep our children safe, Um, because of course the reason that our own school networks have these blocks, these systems in place is to protect our children, to safeguard our children. Um, And so if they are using a VPN so that they can access their games at break time, so that they can watch um, Netflix when that's blocked on the network, whatever it might be um we have less control over what they are doing on the internet during school hours and we have less uh, fewer opportunities it's good for us to be clued up on vpns i think it's good for us to recognize that children know about them um that they are using them and that putting you know i will not use a vpn into your Acceptable user policy doesn't stop the children from doing it um, because they don't always kind of process and they don't always understand what the acceptable user policy is, um, what it's for, why they're agreeing to it. So, yeah, I think in addition to all of the benefits that a VPN can bring, I must say, I do, I have one um, on my home computer for when I'm shopping and stuff specifically so that I don't get my prices jacked up. Because I'd heard about that. I didn't know if it was true. Um, but I had heard, so I'm glad that that Steve has confirmed it there. Um, but I don't think about doing it on my phone. Um, you know, and I will quite happily connect to the Wi-Fi when I'm on the train or when I'm sitting in a, in a cafe. Um, so I think ahead of going on holiday next week, where I'm sure I will connect to the airport Wi-Fi, and then the plane Wi-Fi, if I am lucky enough to have Wi-Fi on my plane, I haven't actually checked yet. Um, I should probably go ahead and install one on my phone just to just to protect my own data. And I think it is a shame. I think it's a shame that we need to go through these, these measures in order to keep ourselves safe online when being online is such a big part of our lives. Um, but then I suppose the reality is that we have to and the reality is that my front door is locked right now um, so i am keeping myself and my possessions safe in the in the physical world so i should probably do the same in the digital world as well it's funny isn't it, how we live these two types of lives um, online and in reality and we are generally speaking much more conscious of our safety um, in the online space uh sorry no we're not in the offline space than we are in the online space let's talk about cultural capital shall we that's why we are here today i was lucky enough to be joined by four amazing people um on monday night two representatives from pearson two currently practicing teachers um and then me And we had an amazing two hour conversation that just flew by, flew by, it disappeared, all about cultural capital. Um, If you haven't listened back to that show, it's a show that was sponsored by Pearson. Um, Please do go back and listen to that if you are interested in cultural capital or if you are, if you have your interest piqued by anything that we talk about today, because I think this is a very, very important topic for all teachers to discuss, not just MFL teachers. Um, On Monday, we were talking about cultural capital in terms of language, but cultural capital actually is very important across the school in all subjects. Um, And even for those of you who are not teachers, because I know that I am very lucky to have a few members of um, of my breakfast family who listen because they enjoy the show. Um, They have other jobs relating to working with young people. Um, Social work, writing, that sort of thing. And I'm very grateful to have you here. Very grateful. But it's good for you guys to consider cultural capital as well. Because everything that we do with young people involves cultural capital, it involves culture, it involves making judgments about culture, whether they are explicit or implicit. And for me, it's really important for us to be aware of that, to be conscious of that, to be thinking about it. Um, So, yeah, please do go back and listen to that show um, if you haven't already, because there are some amazing insights from um, from Katie, from Fiona, from Adam, from Olga. We had a great discussion. I still go back through and my notebook, through the notes that I took from what they were saying, because there were some amazing things. Um, I put up a display in my department on Thursday, all about cultural capital. Um, this has really been on my mind this week. And so I kind of wanted to, to dive into it a little bit more here, to kind of pull out some threads that I thought were most interesting. Um, and then to see how, Kind of over the summer we can think about culture and how in September we can really begin to embed it into our own curricula. So we're going to start by going back to the 1930s because that's really where this whole discussion of cultural capital begins. Um, and I want, I want you to think about George Orwell for a second. I want you to think about George Orwell's writing Um, George Orwell wrote some amazing things. I love George Orwell. I really do. 1984 was a book that I read, I think, when I was in year 10. It might have been in year nine. Um, And it was the first time that I really felt like I was reading a grown-up book. Um, I'd read Animal Farm already. I read Animal Farm, I think, when I was in year eight. So when I was about 12, 13. Um, And I, I think Animal Farm, for all of its meaty, forgive that awful pun, um, for all of its meaty content, uh, Animal Farm is very much a a children's book, a young adult's book. Whereas when I was reading 1984, um, prompted by my English teacher, she gave me a copy um, to read outside of lessons. Um, I really felt like I was reading a grown up book for the first time. And it was gritty, but not in the kind of really depressing sense that um, that I get from gritty stuff these days. It was it realistic in quite a scary way and it kind of really opened my eyes to the fact that there were so many different types of experiences outside of my own um as a as a kid and to be honest as an adult um, i was and am a science fiction fantasy person i am looking right now at my bookshelves and uh, you know i've got a whole shelf dedicated to comic books and graphic novels and manga Um, i have got so much young adult fiction up here which is invariably all variations on chosen one themes because i really like the chosen one trope um you know, that's very much what I like is is science fiction, fantasy, things that take me out of this world. Um, and so I was kind of reading something for the first time that was firmly grounded in our world, despite the fact that it was set, you know, the year before I was born and clearly hadn't come true. Um, there were these elements of realism in it. I suppose it was science fiction realism in the same way that we have magical realism, uh, that I could kind of believe. And a, a big point of 1984, just like Animal Farm, is that class divide, is, is the divide between high class and low class, between rich and poor. And this would have been a direct result of George Orwell's experiences. Because, of course, in the 1930s, we were going through the Great Depression. Now, in the cultural zeitgeist, the Great Depression tends to make people think of the US. Um, Because a lot of what we see about the Depression is about what was happening in America. It was about prohibition um, in the 20s. It was about um, stock market crashes and all that sort of thing. But Europe was going through a depression as well. Britain was going through a depression as well. Um, unemployment hit, hit two million uh, during this time. There are um, videos from, from Pathé which show men and women queuing in the streets in order to try and get work. And there is this very, very stark very clear, very strict rich-poor divide. And it's here that cultural capital really starts. It's here that cultural capital is very important. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that class divides in Great Britain started in the 1930s, because we all know that's nonsense. We've all seen Downton Abbey. We all know that the rich had servants. We all know that there was the upstairs-downstairs divide Uh, and we all know that that dates back, it goes back through Victorians, it goes back through Middle Ages when there's serfdom and literal landlords, the lords who owned the land that you live on. We know it goes back through the, the Iron Age when we had tribes and there were chieftains and there were kings and there were queens and they were served by the people in their kingdoms, we know that for as long as there have been people there has been a separation, a divide between those who have and those who have not, and it tends to be those who have not who serve those who have. But it's, it's really in the 1930s that in Britain In my opinion this becomes very stark and very clear and it becomes a problem Um, it becomes a cultural problem it becomes something that actually starts interfering with the way that people live their lives because it was at this point that britain started pretending that it doesn't have a class system anymore so as the the servants moved out of the big houses because actually they could be paid more working in factories working in mines uh, than they could by working in the houses there started to become this concept of social equality so because people were no longer serving families And they were now serving a boss. They kind of, there was less of a feeling of inferiority because you no longer had somebody directly above you, literally lording it over you. You were earning your own wage, yes, for somebody else to increase somebody else's capital, but you were earning your own wage, which in turn allowed you to buy things that you wanted. So you could have your house, you could have your little garden, you could get flowers, you could get a television when that started to become more mainstream. Um, You know, we all know the boom in televisions around the coronation of the late Queen Elizabeth II. And so people started to become more individual. I I think that this is where particularly in, in British culture, the idea of Western individualism really started to become prominent. Because for the first time you could be, because the people who had to work, the, the literal working class people, um, they now had more income, they now had more time, and yes, they were exhausted when they got home from working in the mine, but they got home and they could stop. It wasn't like being in service where you were working from the moment you woke up until the moment you went to bed. So there was now the advent of, of leisure time. There was the, the invention of the weekend. And there were strikes and political discussions That meant that you could have two days off, Saturday and Sunday. It wasn't just Sunday the Holy Day anymore. You could have the day before as well to enjoy yourself, to rest. But as people became more socially mobile, I suppose, they wanted more. They felt that they should have more. They aspired to more. And of course, quite often that more was was kept from them because of their circumstances, because of job losses, because of unemployment being at two million. And so the, the difference between the rich and poor became very, very obvious at this point. Because socially, theoretically, these people were the same. The, the, the owner of the mine socially would have been the same as the workers of the mine, not necessarily a lord or a lady, but just somebody who could have afforded to buy the mine in the first place. But they had the money, they had the capital, and the workers didn't. And so this divide, in my opinion, again, this is all just my opinion, um, became more obvious at this point. And so this is kind of where the the class divide in Britain again became even more obvious. Um, I'm about to to use not some more on here. It became even more obvious, but in a very subtle way, <laughs> because you have fewer of your your lords and ladies um, juxtaposed with their servants. And what was happening was you had these very subtle differences between people. You had these very subtle differences between the working class and the middle class. And you had working class people who were aspiring to be middle class. Um, Raymond Briggs in his, the biography he wrote of his parents um, shows that, that juxtaposition between working and middle-class beautifully um, because he has his mum who was in service before she got married aspiring to be middle-class and he has his dad who was very very proud of being working class and all of their kind of tension in their marriage and he doesn't depict it as a tense marriage at all, it's clearly very loving, uh, very supportive. But the the little spats that they have, the little arguments that are depicted are all about that difference in class. They're all about Raymond's dad, Ernest, you know, happily swearing, um, happily supporting the Labour Party, um, going down the pub with his mates. All of those things that were very typical working class, while his mum, who had those aspirations of higher class, she didn't like swearing. She chastised him. For, for for swearing, particularly in front of a young Raymond, she, she didn't like to refer to them as common. She was quite happy to say that their neighbours were common, but she didn't want their family to be considered common. She was a supporter of the Conservative Party, always had been, and so the kind of political tensions in the family are quite obvious there. And and this was in around this same time, the 1930s. And so, what we have is this, this class tension in Britain, uh, because the class boundaries have become a lot more woolly, a lot more wishy-washy. And this is one of the issues that we still have now when we define and categorise and talk about social class. There's a lack of agreement on what social class is, and there are all sorts of classification systems that exist, because what I talk about as being working class versus middle class versus upper class, and then of course I'm saying working class, uh, I'm saying middle class, but you can have lower middle class and upper middle class. That's gonna be very different, I imagine, to what you think, because I'm a teacher, obviously, that's why I'm here on Teachers Talk Radio, teaching is traditionally a very middle class occupation because to be a teacher you have to have gone through university you have had to have had these kind of middle class privileges yet i don't know if i would consider myself to be middle class because i work for a living which is not to say that middle class people don't work but i think it's odd to say that there is a working class and then there is a middle class and people who work are not all in the working class Um, as a teacher I don't earn a great wage and you know it's absolutely fine I earn more than my parents do but for the amount of work that we do we know that teaching is not a good wage for the amount of education that we have, the amount of experience that we have, we know that comparatively it's not as good as our uh, uni friends who went into computing at the same time that we went into teaching or who went into um, medicine as doctors for example. And so while I probably according to society's definition, I probably can't be considered working class because I have a, a white collar job. I'm not sure that I'm middle class either. And so I don't know where I fit in. I come from a working class family. And so I think I consider myself to be working class. I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, and And all of that sort of thing. But the way that i'm describing it now i'm sure that many of you are sitting there going no darren don't be stupid you are clearly middle class because you're a teacher and and because that's how you personally define the class system or no don't be stupid darren you are clearly working class because you only earn around thirty thousand pounds a year because that's how you define the class system so because there is this lack of agreement on what the class system is and because there are so many different types of class system and because particularly in britain we do try and pretend that the class system doesn't exist anymore it can be difficult to figure out exactly what we mean when we talk about the impact of class on education and this fits perfectly into what we're talking about when we talk about cultural capital I'm going to come back to what is next on my little slide in a minute and I'm going to talk about what cultural capital actually is now Tom who I see is in our audience this morning good morning to you Tom actually asked me this question at the top of the show on Monday um so, again, if you want to hear my very quick, very improvised answer to the question, what is cultural capital? Please do go back and listen to um, to Monday evening's show. And even if you don't want to hear my definition of cultural capital and you want to hear from other people, still do go back and listen to it because it is a very fascinating show. But in a nutshell, this idea of cultural capital, um, it was set out in the 1970s by Pierre Bourdieu, who is... A sociologist and there was already this idea of economic capital so those are the material advantages that people have across society particularly the middle and upper classes um, Pierre said okay yeah that's that's true you know there are these economic advantages that people have there are material advantages that people have but actually there are also cultural advantages that people have that contribute to educational inequality so pierre said basically that there are some children were at an advantage at school because they had more knowledge and experience from their time at home than others and in a nutshell that's what cultural capital is when i explain cultural capital to my year nine french class on wednesday that's kind of what I told them it was. It boils down to what you know and what your experiences are. Because if we are social constructivist teachers, um, as I was trained to be, and I have done a whole show on social constructivism, so please do go back through the archives and listen to that one if you are not too sure about the term. We know that knowledge is built on pre existing knowledge. And even if you're not a social constructivist teacher, even if you ascribe to another pedagogical theory, you will know that there are hooks that we try and hang new knowledge off of. There are links that we try and make to make knowledge easier for our children to retain. So it does kind of stand to reason that the more you know, the easier it is to learn something else. And again from a linguistics point of view from a language point of view i say this to my kids all the time um i had an a-level in german when i went and did my stint in the netherlands Um, i I went to to the netherlands specifically because i have an a-level in german uh that's a whole story um but because i had a grounding in german I did find Dutch quite easy to pick up. Um, Dutch is, by the way, the easiest language for a native English speaker to learn um, because of the, the shared cultural history there, the, the shared linguistic history. Uh, so I'm not saying that this is a massive achievement for me to have learned Dutch. But because I had German uh, and I could make these links between sounds and between vocabulary, I find it much easier. Because I had some Swedish, I found it much easier because there are links there. Because I speak French and Latin fluently, I understand Spanish, particularly when I see it written, occasionally when I hear it, but particularly when I see it written, despite having never studied Spanish before, because of the links that I have, because of knowledge that I can pull in. And so that works in my daily life all of the time. I told my Year Nines that one of the one of the Chinese euphemisms for members of the LGBTQ plus community is rabbit. Um, and on the surface, that doesn't seem to make very much sense, and that can be quite difficult to remember. But if you go back and you look at how the Chinese god of Um, same-sex relationships because ancient Chinese religion had two gods of love and marriage and relationships, one that governed heterosexual and one that governed homosexual. The god of homosexual relationships was a rabbit god and so that's where that came from and having that knowledge helps me to remember this term that I wouldn't necessarily find easy to retain otherwise. So the more you know and the more diverse your experiences the easier it is to learn something else. This is also why and I'm not going to get on my soapbox about this but um maybe that will be a show in in August. This is also why I don't like the the lauding of specialization in 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 British education because I think that we forget that a generalist's knowledge can be just as deep as a specialist's knowledge. And because as generalists, we have a broad range of understanding, because we have a broad range of knowledge, we can more easily make links between different things. And it's these links between different things that helps to create knowledge, that helps to push knowledge forward. So this is what cultural capital is. It's having knowledge there in the background that helps you to learn the new stuff that you're being taught. And this is why it's capital, because you can have different amounts of knowledge. Our children come into the classroom with different amounts of knowledge, different experiences. And the the cultural capital chasm that we were talking about on Monday, that's about that gap between the different experiences and the different knowledges that our children have, that can disadvantage certain children and advantage others. And on Monday, we talked all about how we how we um, level that playing field. So now that we know what cultural capital is let's think about how it situates, how it's seated in life. Um, So there are generally accepted by um, sociologists four ranges, four types of capital. So there is that cultural capital, the worth of a person's knowledge in their setting or their field based on their experiences outside. There's economic capital, As we've already discussed, financial wealth, how much money you have in the bank or in stocks or in property or however you keep your money. There's social capital, your social network, who you know. And then there's educational capital, your skills, your opportunities, your qualifications. And all of those are are very, very tightly interlinked. To the extent that some of these things I would have called cultural. So I would actually have called educational capital, cultural capital. Because for me, the education that you are in, particularly before you go to university, so particularly pre-18, that's all to do with your culture. Because in the UK, we have these catchment areas where basically you will go to the closest school to your house or to the house where you spend most of your time um, in the case of children who split their time between two households and you don't really get much of a choice. You might have the choice to take a test and go to a grammar school, um, in which case you will again go to the one that is closest to your house. If you have got decent economic capital or maybe good social capital you might go to a private school if you can afford to do that if your parents are best friends with the headmistress and she will give you a discount so they are all very much interlinked um and they always have been i was watching the larkins yesterday uh no sorry on thursday uh, based on H. E. Bates's um, pop Larkin books, it's the, the the new version of Darling Buds of May, and um, the character Pinky Jeroboam verbalised this um, to a teacher. She was talking to Missus Chan, who is the the head teacher of the village school, and uh, Pinky says that it's not what you know that gets you far in life; it's who you know. Um, and Mrs Chan, the teacher, says, well, you know, that's very sad. So that's a shame. Um, don't you want better for your children? It's basically the insinuation. And, and, and Pinky turns around and says, no, not really, because it works for us. And I think that's the other thing to remember about capital is that it's all about what works for you as the individual you're going to prioritise the one that makes your life better, you're going to claim that the one that makes your life better is the one that matters, but actually it is the interplay of the four, of economic, of social, of educational, of cultural, that makes up a life, and that makes up advantage, and that makes up privilege, and that's very, very important for us to remember. So Bourdieu, the sociologist who came up with this idea of cultural capital, he defined three prominent um three prominent concepts that help build into this cultural capital so we've got habitus to start with your habitus is your experience and social position so your habitus is basically what no one really controls it's all about the outside the, pre- the outside pressures that are on you. With our children, their habitus is quite often controlled predominantly by their parents or their guardians because they are born into the social position of their parents. Um, they are those who are maybe adopted or fostered do so into the social position of their adoptive family, their foster family, but of course they have their initial life experience um, to begin with and that builds into their habitus. As we get older we do have more control over our habitus because we control whether we go to a museum of an evening or whether we sit and watch Netflix, or whether we sit and read George Orwell, or whether we read a comic, or whether we doom scroll, or whatever it is we might do. But for the young people that we teach, they have very little control over their habitus. Then there is the field. And your field is the space in which you live your life. If you are in London, which has Um, theatres, and restaurants, and museums, and Chinatown, and, you know, all sorts of cultural diversity, you're going to have a very different experience to somebody growing up in rural Gloucestershire that I did, where, you know, you walk through my high street, and there are charity shops, and there are takeaways. And you compare that to a friend of mine who came to visit last week um, and said that his high street is, again, uh, much smaller than my own and has, I think, a pub and a, a village corner shop. Those are three very different experiences that we have just based on the space that we're in. And that's what Bourdieu meant by field. So where our children are growing up very much determines the access that they have to all sorts of cultural ideas, which in turn has an impact on their cultural capital. Then there's the doxa. The doxa is something over which none of us ever have any control. The doxa are the rules of the game. They're the rules by which we live. They're the rules that society has determined to be important. And so we have to live by those. So interestingly, when we're thinking about how Bourdieu came up with cultural capital and what he says influences it, we actually have very little control. We have zero control over the doxa. We have as adults control over field and habitus, but our children don't. Our children have that controlled for them. And that, of course, means that part of our job as their teachers, or as their social workers, or as people who write books for them, is to help to broaden their cultural experience so that we can help to improve their cultural capital. Because if we do that, and if we help to to expose our children to a whole range of culture, the children that don't have the opportunity to do that at home, the children who don't have the privilege of doing that at home, get that privilege. And the children who do already do cultural things at home with their parents, get more of that privilege now there are of course discussions to be had about equality about equity that's really important i don't have time to go into those today but i'm not ignoring them what i am saying is that that all children have the right they in fact have a a human right i put this on my display um but it is in the um the UN list of human rights to have access to culture. And so we should be, as teachers, making sure that we plan for and provide those opportunities for them. Uh, Sullivan in 2000 conducted a, uh, a piece of research which stated that children who achieved well read complex fiction watch documentaries or current affairs programs or science and nature programs attend events that are seen as high culture so that will be theater will be ballet and they have parents with higher level qualifications now of course this is as all educational research a generalization um You know, as I said, I am in the process of studying for a doctorate, um, but I am the very first person in my family to get a degree of any kind at all. Um, My parents have both worked since the age of 16. And so, you know, it's, it's not that these things are necessary for a child, for a person to achieve. This is just what he found helps. What's interesting, in my opinion, and based on a conversation that I had with a colleague of mine the other day, is that some of these are very, um, very defined. So watching specifically documentaries or current affair programmes and science and nature programmes, that's very defined. Whereas read complex fiction is a bit more woolly. Because I had a discussion with um, with my colleague about what defines complex fiction. Because we were talking about um manga and anime, and of course as as someone who's one of his specialisms um as a generalist is in Asian media and languages, I am very much in favor of our young people watching anime and reading manga um they like it, they enjoy it and the biggest thing that I took from the children's literature course that I did at university as part of my, um, my English and Classics BA is that picture books, comics are just as complex as novels, but they are complex in a different way. They are complex in that you have to learn to read the pictures. You have to learn to understand what the artist is getting at. It's not as laid out for you as it is in a novel. So in some ways, you can argue that graphic novels, comic books, picture books are more complex than narrative prose, because there are multimedia elements to it that children have to learn to decipher. Uh my colleague didn't like the idea. Um he is more in favor of the gradual introduction of children to George Orwell, to the classics. And I think that's important too. But as we will discuss um in a couple of minutes when we talk about high and low educ uh, high and low culture, there isn't really a big difference. So I thought that was interesting. I thought that was interesting. But what that means for us as teachers is we need to make sure that our students are reading. Now, in my opinion, what they read doesn't matter so long as they are reading because it all broadens their horizons. If my year sixes are sitting in their free time and reading football magazines, that's absolutely fine by me because they are reading. Now, I understand that not everybody has that opinion. Uh, we should be getting them to watch documentaries, to watch current affairs, to watch science and nature programs. We, if possible, should be giving the opportunity to attend high culture events, take them to the theater, take them to the ballet take them to the cinema to watch the ballet on the screen if that's easier than getting them to an actual ballet there are all sorts of ways to access high culture we can't do anything about providing parents with higher level qualifications but what we can do is make sure that our children understand the value the importance the joy of education so that they can potentially be the parents who have higher level qualifications or We can teach them that actually you can be the first person in your family to go to university and you can do very, very well. You can get your first class degrees. And we can help them to celebrate that. I think it's all about teaching them that their experiences, whatever those experiences may be, are valid. That their interests, whatever their interests may be, are valid. Because when it comes down to it, everything is culture, in my opinion.
2: It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying.
1: Okay, so there are these two there are these two main theories um, around how we can give our students access to culture. And the one that is important to us as educationalists is the cultural reproduction theory, which Basically says that the education system is biased against the working class and it favours the dominant class culture. And there is this idea that we in school attempt to get all of our kids to be middle class, regardless of what their class background is. And again, if you think about what I've just said based on Sullivan's report, this idea that we should be getting them to watch um, current affairs, science programs, go to the ballet, go to university. That is all, uh, those are all signifiers of the middle class. And it kind of ignores the actual lived relevant experiences of the working classes. Um, Ray et al in 2009 did a study into working class students in elite universities and they kind of set themselves against Bourdieu. So Bourdieu is arguing that in an unfamiliar field, the habitus changes and it becomes divided against itself. Um, what Realital found is that it's a bit more nuanced than that, that students begin to develop creative adaptations and multifaceted responses. So there is this idea that you can not really fake it till you make it, but kind of, that you can adapt your cultural background, that you can adapt where you have come from to fit where you are now. You can adapt your habitus to fit your current field. And that's quite interesting when we think about identity, when we think about particularly stigmatized identity. Now, a stigmatized identity is an identity that is somehow undesirable or demeaning according to one specific domain. And having that identity means that you are not fully accepted in society. Now, if you were to take a microcosm of a school for example, then class can become a stigmatized identity. You know, if if we are studying specifically working class students at in inverted commas elite universities, then we are suggesting that being working class there is a stigmatized identity in that field because it's the thing that gets in the way of those students being fully accepted into the society of that university and so they are having to control their habitus in order to make sure that they are accepted or at least that they are not excluded and this works um, in conjunction with the theory of hegemonic identity so hegemonic identity is the identity that is so dominant that it makes Other people um, reluctant to assert their own individual identities. It makes it difficult for people to assert their own identities. And again, we see this in all sorts of fields. You know, if we look at um, sexualities, for example, because the inverted commas default is heterosexual, homosexual people have traditionally historically found it difficult to assert their own feelings of identity. If we look at gender, because stereotypical masculine and feminine, that binary, has always existed, those are the hegemonic identities, that a woman who is who presents as quite masculine a man who presents as quite feminine a transgender person a non-binary person might find it difficult to assert their identity or to be taken seriously because they don't fit into the hegemonic identity there and so their identity potentially becomes stigmatized so all of this means that our students identities based around their cultural capital and the culture that they're in can make it very difficult for them to assert themselves and this again is why it's important for us as educationalists to broaden our own horizons so that we can allow our students to be mindful of, to be aware of different types of culture, different types of identity, so that our students with stigmatized identity don't feel stigmatized, and so that our children who are part of the hegemonic identity also don't feel stigmatized because they shouldn't feel left out, but also that they understand the privilege that they have by conforming to the hegemonic identity. It's also complicated and it's also nuanced. And I think it's really hard to get this right, to be honest. I think it's really hard when you when you get down to the nitty gritty of what cultural capital is and what exposure to culture does and how important exposure to culture is. It's really hard to get this right. And as, a single individual teacher you don't have to do all of it. I, as let's take my um, my year eight German class, for example, I as their German teacher don't need to be responsible for taking them to the ballet and letting them read manga and letting them collect football cards and taking them to a museum I just have to be one of many teachers and not just teachers, but one of many adults in their lives who give them all of those different experiences. And I can just do the ones that relate to my knowledge, my interests and my subject. And as long as I am one of many teachers doing that then my children are going to get these broad range, this broad range of cultural experiences that will improve their cultural capital, that will make it easier for them to learn things, which again is my job as their teacher. The difficulty as an individual teacher comes if you are the only person doing that, if you are in a setting that doesn't prioritise cultural capital, but you as a person know that it's important because then you are the only one. So I think what's important here is for us to all remember that we all have a part to play. And unfortunately, that's a phrase that we hear a lot in education, because we all have a part to play in everything. We all have a part to play in safeguarding. We all have a part to play in sport. We all have a part to play in um, RSE. We all have a part to play all the time and there are lots of parts that we have to play but as somebody who believes that culture and language is important as somebody who believes that the more you know the easier it is to learn other things i do think that we all have a part to play in this one and i'm i'm perfectly willing to to sit here and say that um, to be a hypocrite, because I hate being told that I have a part to play in things that I'm not sure are so important. Um, but I guess that's part of my own cultural capital, isn't it? That I'm privileged enough to sit here and to have seen the importance that culture plays. I'm privileged enough to have this this space to talk to you, this this platform on which to chat about cultural capital which means that I've done the reading on it and I'm I'm privileged enough to have had time to do the reading and so I can sit here and say these things. It is interesting when you start to pull your own cultural capital apart and you start to consider how your own cultural capital impacts your own identity and your own values and what you think is important because then you can start to realise why these experiences are also important to our students because they help to build up this rich complex multifaceted personality that we all hope that we as individuals have if we think about our diaspora children specifically so our children who are no longer situated in their Um, in in the country of their heritage so immigrant children or second generation children for example they begin to have what's called a hybrid identity when it comes to cultural capital because those children at home have one hegemonic identity, the identity of the culture of their parents, of their homeland, of the place that they grew up. And then when they go to school, there is a second hegemonic identity, the identity of the the country in which they now live. And they need to try and, and merge those two together into their own personal identity. And it can be very difficult for those children to do that, particularly if the two cultures are conflicting. So if, for example, you have a child who comes from a very orthodox religious household that very strictly believes that there is a gender binary and that heterosexuality is the norm in inverted commas for a reason and that's what they are grown up to believe and they then go into a school in a country that is telling them that actually gender is a spectrum and sexuality is a spectrum and these things are fluid that can be very difficult for those children to resolve and they will have to make a choice between the two sets of culture that they are involved in and what they believe. And I suppose, again, that's the point of cultural capital, isn't it? Is exposing our children to different points of view, to different ideas and giving them the tools that they need to come up with their own beliefs in a very rational logical way so that they can justify and defend what they believe that kind of situation that's called secondary socialization so it's this idea that we learn lots of lessons outside of the family so we learn things in school in media from our friends from religious institutions so that's all secondary socialization and it can, if we're not careful, reinforce a stigmatized identity. So again, I was thinking about my colleague who was lamenting the fact that his tutor group liked to read manga um, instead of novels in their reading time. And my my Initial reaction, I was very defensive to start with, because of course I like manga, I read manga. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with it. And so I went on the defense and I was just like, well, if that's what they like to read, then isn't it good enough that they're reading? And, and I stand by that. I, I, I stand by uh, by my assertion there. But then I was also thinking that actually, what are we saying to our children if we are saying to them what you are reading, that thing that you enjoy, it's not good enough. Your comic is not as good as Jane Austen, therefore you are lesser if you are reading it. Playing your computer console is not as good as playing rugby, therefore you are lesser if you are playing on your computer. So we do have to be careful when we are teaching cultural capital, when we are trying to um, um, to bridge that chasm of cultural capital, that we are not suggesting that certain culture is better than others, because that can reinforce stigmatized identities that already exist. And that, of course, is, as teachers, not what we want to be doing. So let's take a minute to think about popular culture. I love pop culture. Um, I'm just going to kind of nail my colors to my mast here. Um, I very much like popular culture. I think popular culture is very important because it's popular for a reason. So popular culture refers to these cultural artefacts that are produced for mass sale to ordinary people. Um, I did read one definition that suggested that pop culture products are short lived and have no lasting value. Um, I actually disagree with that because I think if you look at the work of Charles Dickens, they were pop culture in his time. They were produced for mass sale to big audiences. They were produced a chapter or two at a time as a way of hooking people to get them to buy the next instalment. You didn't buy a whole Charles Dickens book. You bought a couple of chapters and then you waited for the next couple of chapters to come out. They were basically soap operas in Victorian times. Shakespeare who is now lauded as one of the best English language playwrights to have ever lived, and I would agree with that. He wrote, or his intention was to write some uh, popcorn munch blockbusters. He didn't intend to write these kind of high society, high culture as we see it now, masterpieces of theater, That's why his plays are full of lewd jokes and double-entendre and all sorts of things that we tend to gloss over when we teach them to children or we pretend aren't there when we watch them on BBC Two. So I would disagree that pop culture is not intended to last. And I would disagree that pop culture is lesser than high culture. Because we've seen that even in just 200 years, something that is pop culture can become considered high culture. And again, I'm looking at my bookshelves now and I'm wondering if any of the the mass market paperbacks that I have, if any of the comic books that I have, will any of those be considered high culture in a hundred years time? I don't know. And I suppose that's one of the points of it. We don't know what the future is going to look like. We don't know what people are going to look back on our time and think. And so if we start judging certain types of books, certain types of films, certain types of plays as being more worthy, more cultural than others, we are casting judgments on things that we don't really understand because we don't have the benefit of hindsight yet. So for me it's really important not to judge what a child is reading or collecting or playing but making sure that they have a diverse range of experiences if a child was exclusively reading comic books then i might suggest that they pick up a, a novel in the same way that if a child was exclusively reading novels I might suggest that they pick up a comic book because it is that diversity of experience that is important when we're talking about cultural capital. Not saying that one thing is better than something else, but that all things are relevant, all things are acceptable, and it's the range of knowledge that a child has that makes other things easier to learn. I keep coming back to that, but I think that is what underpins cultural capital here. That, that we need it so that our children can learn and so they need to have a diverse range of experiences now Cooley came up with this concept of the looking glass self which is the idea that our image of ourselves is reflected back to us like a mirror in how other people see us and so again this is why it's important that we don't judge youth culture. That we don't make mean spirited jokes about TikTok. Because what that is doing is showing our children that their culture, what's important to them, is not respected. And if children don't feel respected, they won't respect. Children very, very clearly see respect as being a two way street. And so, you know, I do joke with my children about TikTok, um, about all social media. But I make it very clear that it's, it's not a judgment. One of my six formers the other day asked me whether I was on TikTok. And I said, no, because I'm not 13 years old. Which perhaps is dismissive of the genre. But at the same time, I wasn't saying that it's not important because it is important when you're a teenager, I was just saying that it's not important when you get to my stage of life. I think it is a very fine balance there, but we need to be very careful when we are tackling culture and when we think about cultural capital that we are not belittling things because many children will see that as a belittlement of themselves. This then falls into um, Mead's research in 2001. Mead was studying a tribe in New Guinea and she found that they had a very different um, interpretation of masculine and feminine characteristics to in Western societies. Which led her to conclude that ideas of masculine and feminine are not based on biological differences, as we like to believe they are, as we're told they are. You know, oh, well, men are biologically stronger than women, and that's why they do X, Y, and Z. But actually, masculine and feminine characteristics are socially constructed. And... That means that the sense of identity can be in flux, because your sense of identity, even something that you might consider as fundamental, as innate, as whether you present as masculine or feminine, depends on the culture that you're in, depends on the society in which you are living. So our individual identities change In these very, very small ways all the time, we are constantly in flux. Think about code switching, for example. Code switching is when you use different language patterns, depending on who you are talking to. So right now, while I'm talking to you, my wide range, diverse audience, I'm using a very different type of cadence. I'm using very different language to if I am just talking to a friend of mine which in turn will be a very different type of language to if I were texting. So that's called code switching um, in linguistics. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. And that's just one way that our identity is in flux, that our identity changes depending on the culture we find ourselves in, the situation that we find ourselves in. And again, cultural capital allows our children to make those switches because it broadens their horizons, it gives them more information, it gives them more to draw on so that they can adapt themselves to different social situations, the different situations that we hope that they will be in because that means that they are leading positive, strong, productive lives. So ultimately, I can't believe that um, we are already at 27 minutes past 10. I've got three minutes to wrap this up. Ultimately, cultural capital is the essential knowledge and experience that a child needs to be educated. Hello, Mr Magpie, how's your wife and family? I've now got a magpie sitting on the um, the telephone line just outside my window. And of course, part of my cultural capital is the rhyme one for sorrow, two for joy, three for girl, four for boy. So I always like to, to greet A um, a solitary magpie. But anyway, cultural capital is this knowledge, this experience that a child needs to be an educated part of society. It's the essential knowledge and experience, the range of knowledges and experiences that children need to be a success. And it's not down to one teacher to provide all cultural capital, it's down to a school to embed cultural capital as part of its provision and for all teachers to play their part in giving these cultural experiences to their children. So as we leave today, I'm going to ask you to think about what you do in your school department to help to build cultural capital. What do you do within your own curriculum to bridge the the cultural capital chasm, allow for different life experiences, and what opportunities do you offer through enrichment programs, through extracurriculars, through trips, through what's in your curriculum in order to broaden your children's cultural capital? Because all of this is really important. And I think if you are starting to, to plan for next year, if you're starting to put together schemes of work, to put together lesson plans, think about these things. Think about the opportunities that you have for cultural capital with your children, with your classes. Oh, thank you, Tim. Tim is a longtime friend of the show uh, who has texted in to say that it was a good one. I appreciate that. Um, I really, really do. Thank you very much. This is my last show before I take a hiatus for the summer. Um, So I will not be with you for breakfast for the next four Saturdays. Um, I will, however, be back on Saturday the 5th of August for our next one. Hopefully my month away will give me some time to, to come up with some new interesting things to talk to you all about. I am, however, hosting one more show with Pearson. Um, in July, so please do tune in for that one. And as I've said, if you are intrigued by anything we've talked about today, please do go back and listen to last Monday's show. So that's a show from Monday the 26th of July 2023, which is all about cultural capital um, and all about how we can bridge that gap. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful summer, or a wonderful July, because I will be back in August. And like I said at the top of the show, this has been a period of reflection for me. So I want to thank all of you who listen, uh, who contribute to this this platform that I have, because um, I do appreciate it. I do appreciate you all being here. And I hope that, that every Saturday I bring you something to think about or just something interesting to listen to while you're having coffee and a croissant in the morning. Have a great July and I will see you all in August. Goodbye.